You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Tony Nader sits down with Dr. Federico Fijin to talk about the relationship of matter to consciousness, exploring quantum weirdness, including entanglement or spooky action at a distance, as Albert Einstein famously called it. Is there an underlying meaning to all that there is? What is the difference between meaning and symbols? How can consciousness bridge gaps in our understanding of reality? Dr. Nader and Dr. Fajin discuss how we can grasp ultimate reality and how from this ultimate reality we can build up our universe as we see it. Dr. Federico Fajin is a physicist, engineer, inventor, entrepreneur, and author of his autobiography, Silicon, From the Invention of the Microprocessor to the New Science of Consciousness. In 2009, he received the highest honor the United States confers for achievements related to technological progress the National Medal of Technology and Innovation, presented to him by then-U.S. President Barack Obama for his invention of the first microprocessor. Dr. Frederico Fajin, a legend really that we have today with us. He has been very profound in so many levels and like many great thinkers, going from the technology, the physical part, into now truly looking into the ultimate reality of life, the ultimate reality of what is life made of and the role our consciousness plays in, in this field of existence to make our life better. Already he's made our life better in technology and now he would like us to research the fundamental aspects of reality that allow technology to be used in the best possible way and give meaning to the apparent outer aspects of reality, which are, as he calls, the symbolic aspect. Frederico, it's my honor and joy to be with you. Welcome, and we look forward to a wonderful discussion on so many fields that you are so familiar with and you have contributed to humanity in such a profound way. Well, thank you, Tony, for your great introduction. I'm looking forward to a wonderful discussion. Consciousness. Shall we go to consciousness? Because the other background is, is fabulous. It's all there on the internet, and it's very interesting to realize your achievements. Our listeners and viewers are interested in consciousness because we have been developing that field as being fundamental. And it's such a joy to see in your realization, in your awakening. It reminds me when I read your book, Silicon, of the awakening of many actual sages and saints, even in the history, where they were being busy doing all kinds of things. And then they have experiences. And then the experiences led them to ask questions and then even to devote their interest and some of them their whole life in trying to get these experiences again, these subjective experiences. Would you mind telling us a little bit uh, about your personal journey in the field of consciousness? 
Not at all. I mean, my my uh, encounter with consciousness goes back to 1987 or so. At that time, I was trying to make integrated circuits that would learn by themselves using what uh, now we call neural networks, so artificial neural networks, which are structures similar to the biological neural networks that we have in our brain. And uh, contrary to what is, is done now, where we do simulation of neural networks using a digital computer, I wanted to do emulation of neural networks using floating gate transistors that would allow a much more compact realization of neural networks. My understanding is now there are several companies that are trying to do something similar because uh, uh, the power dissipation of uh, uh, simulators of neural networks is quite high, where, whereas the analog implementation that emulates neural networks is uh, much more efficient. And so at that time, I was studying uh, neuroscience, I was studying biology, trying to understand how things work in, in our body. And, uh, uh, but I, at one point, I asked myself, uh, these books that talk about electrochemical signals, biochemical signals, they talk about what happens in us uh, as if the experience that we have is explainable through electrical signals and biochemical signals, you know, the functioning of the brain. When I eat a piece of chocolate, I mean, the taste of chocolate is not electrical signals. You know, clearly there is a correlation with the electrical signals in the brain, but I have an experience. Where is the experience coming from? So to me, it was impossible to imagine that electrical signals were equal with an equal sign to the electrical, to the experience. So I encountered what is called the uh, hard problem of consciousness at that time. And I was also not very happy at that time. And so I decided to uh, try to figure out if I could make a conscious computer, given that science said that, you know, consciousness is a phenomenon that happens in the brain. And therefore, if a computer is like a brain, a computer should be conscious. The more I thought about it, the more impossible it was to make a computer conscious. The experience seemed to be a quality completely different from the functioning of the brain or the signaling inside the brain. And it was at that time that I was also unhappy in my life for some reason, because I had achieved everything that should make me happy. But uh, I was not happy, and uh, which is also a problem of consciousness. And, uh, and so it was in that milieu, in that, in that setting, that uh, I had an extraordinary experience of consciousness where I experienced myself as the world that observes itself. Uh, so, you know, th th this experience where the world felt like love, joy, uh, peace and this energy was unbelievably powerful was coming from me how can some, some such an energy of love come from me i mean it was it was impossible to imagine for me i understood then that this energy must be this stuff of which everything is made the entire universe must be made of this scintillating white thing that i was feeling but my point of view that normally is the ordinary point of view of someone that is 
distinct, separate from the world observing the world, now I was the world observing myself. I was both the experience and the experiencer. And, and this was so stunning, uh, just the opposite of what I thought was reality, that uh, if consciousness is about this stuff, I mean, consciousness must be something that is not even close to what science is telling us. And so through that experience, my life immediately changed to a desire to understand this phenomenon. This is wonderful because here we see that actually we live our life through our consciousness. We live our lives through our experience. Even whatever we achieve on the outside level, whatever we get into terms of knowledge, in terms of production, in terms of interaction, happens through consciousness. And so consciousness is so primary and that we live our life through consciousness. And that is what takes us to meaning, that the meaning of reality comes through consciousness. If we have a meaning in life, then we are more satisfied, we are more fulfilled, or we can feel joys and also pain. And this has meaning, whereas without meaning, we wonder what is it all about. And so this is how we differentiate and you beautifully highlight in your writing and thinking the difference between meaning and symbol. And so that the meaning is so profound and that meaning is with consciousness and symbolism is with the objects of consciousness. So we have what you also call the semantic side and the symbolic side of existence. In our work, in my work also, we acknowledge that everything is consciousness as you ultimately, and I, I can quote you beautifully, that you highlighted what is called the consciousness units, that everything actually is conscious and these are elementary or more developed complex consciousness units that are the fundamental components of all that exists. And you say that even space, time, and the quantum fields of the fundamental particles are actually consciousness units. So this is very beautiful. I have used the term observers, part of this, like the observation process, the observers, as the observer looking at other observers. So the other observers become the objects of observation, but the objects are themselves also observers. So do you want to highlight a little bit more this difference in the context of consciousness units between the semantic side and the symbolic side and their interaction? Yeah, well, it just as a background, you know, after that experience, I started studying consciousness the only way that it can be studied by experiencing it. You know, it was very clear that consciousness is what allows us to have experience various types. Uh, and so I went through about 20 years of uh, personal work uh, of using various forms of meditations, various techniques, various schools, and so on. And at the end of 20 years of work, uh, personal work, uh, working probably 30, 40% of my time while running my last company, I came to the conclusion that consciousness could not be an expression of matter but it had to be the other way around. In other words, matter had to be an expression of consciousness. Another way of saying it is that consciousness must be fundamental, must be something 
that cannot be explained in any other way than by its own existence. Because you know that's how we know. So how can we explain the capacity to know if you know if, if we want to explain it with something even simpler than that? There is nothing simpler than the capacity to know. So that capacity to know defines consciousness, defines the experience that allows us to know, get the meaning of things, get the meaning of life, get the meaning of existence, and in fact is is bringing into existence what we know. Anything new that we know is brought into existence by the consciousness of that that we know. And so for me, it was clear that starting in this fashion, the entire narrative of science, uh, starting with the Big Bang and life is developing through natural processes and so on, could not be right. And so it was at that time that I decided to go full time in the study of consciousness in about 2009, getting out of everything that I was doing and dedicating myself to the study of consciousness, the scientific study of consciousness, bringing consciousness into the scientific view by finding a connection between the nature of consciousness and the nature of reality as described by physicists. I'm a physicist and uh, physics has done tremendous, you know, uh, accomplishment in explaining the material world, but uh, so far has not considered consciousness a fundamental aspect of reality. In fact, it's a derivative of matter, and uh, in a way, it's left to to neuroscientists and to cognitive scientists the task to understanding consciousness. But if it is fundamental, this is a problem for physicists, not for, not for neuroscientists. And so that got me to developing a model. It was clear that we had to have a, the stuff that I, on my you know, first experience was something that had the ability to self-reflect and in that self-reflection know itself. And so the stuff of reality must be conscious as a fundamental aspect. But then it must have both an outer aspect, which is symbolic or semantic or, or a syntactical, and an in inner aspect, which is the experiential aspect, which is semantic. Maybe before we go to that, because you mentioned physics, just as a, as a parenthesis, uh, physics itself searching into ultimate reality, going from molecules to atoms to elementary particles, yes has fallen on uh, fields and ultimately quantum fields. So even physics has realized, which means the ultimate objective approach to knowledge, which is studying the objects, uh, led to the objects disintegrating before the eyes of the physics and the physicist into quantum field. And you, you discuss this also in, in your writings yes. beautifully. Uh, absolutely, I mean, the major development of physics in the last uh, 100 years or so has been quantum physics. And quantum physics has essentially destroyed every tenet that classical physics had at the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century. So basically, quantum fields have replaced the notion of particles because particles do not exist as objects. We had always considered particles as the ultimate objects of nature, starting with Democritus and Eusippus. But you know that is not 
how nature works. Uh, uh, there are no particles in that sense, like hard, bounded, irreducible. Uh, uh, billiard boards. Billiard board, <laughs> tiny little billiard boards, uh, extremely tiny little billiard boards. Uh, <laughs> essentially, the, the particles became states of a field. But most importantly, these states of the fields are not independent. If there is an interaction among states, the quantum physics is telling us that there are properties now, they become in common with the states that interact. And so all of a sudden we have, and these properties called entanglement. So the entanglement that exists in, uh, in, in physics, quantum physics, which is a property that the equal of which does not exist in classical physics, is saying that there is something that connects from the inside these states. And to the point where even if the states are far apart, they respond instantaneously to a measurement, for example, uh, which seems to defy the uh, speed of light right. in a sense, even though the nature, the, the probabilistic nature of quantum physics does not allow you to use this property to communicate superluminally, you know, faster than the speed of light. So yeah. quantum physics has properties which has baffled us since the 1920s and uh, uh, that make quantum physics incomprehensible because, for example, quantum information cannot be copied. What kind of information is it, one that cannot be copied? What does it mean to have a system that has information that is, is only possibly knowable by the system? And I'm already hinting here at the step forward that uh, in this new theory of consciousness that together with Professor Giacomo Mauro Dariano, we have just published recently. So, you know, consciousness seems to be a quantum property of nature, something that has been sort of smelled before by many students of consciousness, but no one so far has been able to put the finger on the, on the, on the, real, on the real issue. And the issue is that quantum information can only be useful if it, if it is a representation of the experience of the system whose state is a quantum state. So all of a sudden we have a possible explanation for quantum physics that goes way beyond what uh, we had, you know, we had understood before. In fact, it means that we can understand quantum physics now as and the, and the sort of the, the strangeness of quantum physics because quantum physics describe the interiority of nature as opposed to the exteriority of nature. So quantum, the, the mathematics, which is the only aspect of quantum physics that can express what physicists have found, that mathematical structure is not describing the exteriority, but it describes the interiority of nature. But before we get there, I think I should say something else. But you know, go ahead with it. Yeah, this, no, this is wonderful. Having you know, having explored the objective angle, and that led us to the quantum weirdness, the spooky action at a distance. If we want to assume it is spooky action at a distance, because we are holding on to the physicalist reality, and therefore we cannot explain, and then we start imagining hidden variables and all of these things, which 
seem and end up not being real. So it's as if physics led us to a field aspect of reality and ultimately there are theories of unified field that is one field that manifests as different fields. But it has that weirdness and that things which we cannot explain on the physical level. And so having gone there, maybe we leave this now for a while and start fresh with consciousness and see the explanatory power of consciousness and the logic of it and how it gives us peace in that field of weirdness and start seeing what is the fundamental reality, what is the ultimate reality and how from this ultimate reality we can build up our universe as we see it. And I think you have wonderful ideas about that. Yeah, basically the conclusion, of course, is, you know, uh, a scientist, when he says a conclusion, until it's proven, it's, uh, it's still an hypothesis, right? So, so the hypothesis here is that uh, uh, reality is a construction, if you want to call it that way, that in involves conscious entities that from the beginning interacting with each other build this physical reality that is the outer aspect of reality and build self-knowing uh, through this interaction with each other. So to interact, of course, they need to communicate and to communicate they need symbols. And so the nature of uh, outer reality arises from the symbolic aspects of reality, the symbols that represent the meaning that these entities need to communicate with each other. And so the symbolic aspect is the, the structural aspect, if you want, of the uh, meaning that these entities communicate with each other. Uh, these entities are similar to the monads of Leibniz. Uh, I call them consciousness units, but they can be called anything you want. But basically, they are entities that uh, are emanations from one, one being the totality of what exists, who wants to know itself. So in other words, the desire to know oneself comes directly from the desire of the totality of what exists to, to do likewise. And so it is this desire that manifests in the following way in this model, that once one has a knowing of itself, this knowing of itself brings into existence a conscious entity, a conscious unit. It gives life to a conscious unit, which is a part whole of itself. I call it a part whole because it is a part of itself, but also it contains all the aspects of one. So it is not separate from one. And the reason is that one is holistic and therefore it cannot be made of separable parts. So whatever part it is made of must be a part whole. But now this is not much different than the way we are built. Because, for example, I have about 50 trillion cells in my body, but each cell of my body have the genome of the entire organism. There was the egg out of which my body was uh, constructed. So we are constructed exactly the same way as, as what I'm talking about. Uh, in other words, each cell of my body has the knowledge even if not completely expressed, but all the knowledge of the entire organism. So there are part holes, each, each of my parts are part holes. And if you look at a computer, 
A computer is not made of part holes, it's made of parts which are separable. That's what classical physics is. Uh, and so the parts are the transistors, which are switches on and off. And the switch knows nothing about the computer and even less about the software that runs in the computer. So if a computer was built like our body is built, should each part, each transistor should know the entire computer and the software that runs in it, which clearly is not the case. So you can see already that life is completely different in organization and structure than computers. And so life is actually a quantum classical structure, quantum classical system, where a computer is made of separable parts, is a classical system, and we are quantum. We are quantum because we are these systems that have inner experience, which can be described by quantum information, but the description, quantum information, cannot be the experience. So we have to be careful here because let's not confuse a theory of reality with reality. You know, a theory of reality is mathematical, but reality, you know, is beyond mathematics. And so the same way here, the quantum fields and the mathematics that describes the states of the quantum fields, which are informational states, is simply our imagination of a theory of reality, but the reality is what we experience. So the ontology is in our experience, which is the self-knowing that this stuff of which everything is made can have about itself. Yes, the ontology, the, the essence of things, the ultimate reality that actually constructs everything. So if we rewind a little bit, then we can say we have these observers, which we call them consciousness units in this paradigm, or, or the monads in Leibniz terminology. And also Spinoza had these ideas of holistic idealism and panpsychism and pantheism in his case, you know, as one ultimate reality spreading itself in many ways, that now we can see from a beautiful perspective how it constructs the universe. So if we rewind a little bit and say, well, where do we start? Do we start with the individual consciousness units or we can go to quantum field aspect like in quantum aspects there are of course different layers there as was so not to confuse those who are with us there has been of course the quantum mechanics aspect where there is quantum values which means discrete entities that interact with each other in quantum mechanical ways and then the scientists took us to quantum field which means it's not really just discrete entities it's actually fields that have fluctuations and that have actions within them in some way that appear on the surface as being isolated localized entities and so when we're talking of quantum here i think we're talking about the field aspect and we are extending that field and the theory you're presenting also if i understand it well to say that this is a field of consciousness a field of original primordial meaning 
that then in order to express itself, it expresses itself into symbols that are outer values. And this is where the inner and the outer comes into play, the inner reality and the outer reality. But what is the starting point? Can we say the starting point is one holistic field or the starting point are these consciousness units from your perspective? For my perspective, it is both because the way the way one, which is this field of fields, if you want to call it, but it basically is one entity. Anytime it knows a part of itself, it creates a field, which is a conscious entity, which is a monad. And this field has all the properties of one, but it has a unique point of view about itself and about the world, which is made of other monads like itself. And so in order to know itself, it needs to know the others because they are all aspects of one. Beautiful. Divisible from one. And so you, you cannot know yourself without knowing the other. And therefore, in order to know yourself and the other, you need to communicate because the experience is unique to each monad. And it can only be known directly by the entity itself, by the monad itself. You know, which is exactly the characteristic of quantum information. Quantum information cannot be cloned, is it, it, it cannot be copied, it cannot be known from outside. You can only know if you were to make a measurement in simple systems, you can only know a small portion of it because it can be is characterized by again, this is the theory, characterized by quantum bits which are entangled with each other and interact with each other in ways which are you know, extremely complicated and complex. But in any event, when they manifest as symbols, they manifest as classical bits. So, and they manifest in space-time as classical bits. So the inside, it can be described by these quantum bits which are entangled and create a structure as the experience but outside, the symbolic aspect has to be classical. So this also explains why we need a classical world. The classical world is the manifestation of these symbolic structures that are the uh, symbols, like my words are symbols, that we use to communicate with each other, to know each other. So Beautiful. I might even just, uh, in this context, take a quote from your writing. And I read now a quote from Dr. Hajin. From this hypothesis, the hypothesis uh, just between quotation mark, the hypothesis that everything must intrinsically be conscious. So uh, Dr. Fajin says, Frederico says, from this hypothesis, it follows that objective and subjective must be two intertwined and inseparable aspects of an indivisible whole from the beginning. In other words, the nature of reality intrinsically has an inner and an outer aspect that are irreducible, co-emerging and co-evolving. That's so beautiful. That's so complete. Well written. In fact, it really joins also, I know you're familiar to some extent from what I read uh, with the Advaita Vedanta, the ancient knowledge of Vedanta that describes actually reality as being totally consciousness. 
And in modern times, I have worked with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who has developed the idea of consciousness from the Vedantic approach as being wholeness. And he presents it as one consciousness, one unbounded field of consciousness, a notion of consciousness that is primary. And we're calling it consciousness because its nature is to be conscious. So that's obvious, but just to explain it. And in the process of consciousness, being conscious, becoming conscious, it looks at itself because there is nothing but itself at the beginning in a sense. And looking at itself in the same beautiful way you explain know yourself and knowing itself, it uh, sees three flavors of reality. There is the observer, the consciousness unit, the ultimate consciousness unit. And that same observer looking at itself has a flavor of looking at something that is like an object because there is then the, the symbol, if you like, that comes into play, if we use your terminology, which is beautiful. And then there is this, the connection between them. So the dynamic that connects the observer to the observed, which we call the process of observation, and these are in the ancient, uh, ex as explained by Maharishi, in the ancient Vedantic uh, understanding, they have names and the names are Rishi is the observer, Devata is the process of observation, and Chandas, as Maharishi defines it, is the object of observation. And so the flavor of three already emerges. And so they have these interactions of knowing itself. So knowing itself from how many angles can it know itself? Yeah. From that infinite angle of pure being, pure existence, or from limited angles where maybe the object dominates, the dynamism dominates, the silence dominates. And so there are all so many infinite ways of knowing itself. And this is how multiplicity emerges from the unity of the one unbounded ocean of consciousness. And the terms are used, you know, that observer observed, which if we translate them into the language you use, of course, inner and outer, or semantic and symbolic, conscious unit and physical symbol on the outside. So it's so beautiful that you have reached these conclusions from your depths of intelligence and true research, because it's not easy these days to tell those hard physicalists who smell things, touch things, do things, analyze things in you know, large hadron colliders, and it's so much dominant on the sensory level, to tell them that all of this is an expression of consciousness. So it's wonderful to see a great uh, scientist and inventor that dive deep into the fundamentals of reality and come out with these very profound conclusions. This is really a joy for, I'm sure, all the listeners who are passionate about understanding consciousness and what consciousness is. Yeah, well, for me, um, uh, it, it, the source of uh, information is not being reading books, but actually my own experiences and, and because I described my first experience by then through the 30 years uh, after that I had many extraordinary experiences of consciousness and so the contour of, of consciousness became uh, fairly apparent and clear through these experiences and, and it was after uh, you know uh, trying to 
put them together in, with the language of physics and, you know, I'm still work in progress, of course, but that, that reading other works of others, you know, finding, wow, you know, the Vedas are talking about this stuff. I mean, <laughs> or, or uh, you know, many religions are talking about this stuff, but many philosophers are talking about this stuff. Plotinus, for example, for one, and finding out that my father translated the Enneads of Plotinus, you know, one of these last works that he did, that, you know, my, my father was very interested in Schopenhauer and uh, the Meister Eckert and, you know, the, the mystics. And the unifiers. <laughs> I, I, had, I, had, I did not have the least interest in that work when I was, uh, you know, growing up. <laughs> and it was funny, you know, how I discovered my father had work on this stuff, but again, from an intellectual point of view, but I arrive at from an experiential point of view, which is really how we know. We know through experience. We know by becoming what we know. And, and that is what consciousness does. We live our knowing. It is, it is a completely different knowing than just the knowing, the intellectual knowing. The intellectual knowing is, is one essential aspect of it, but there is also the knowing from the heart and the knowing from the action. And so I call them the head, the, the heart, and the, and the belly, because they, they represent you know, the physical, the active action-oriented, courageous, for example, where's the courage coming from you know, intellectually? You know, it, it doesn't exist as an intellectual, an intellectual property, but it exists when you go uh, you know, against something which is wrong, for example, you do just actions that are directed by you know, by what you really want and what you're really believing, uh, you know, that's the belly. And then the heart, of course, is empathy, is, is uh, compassion, is union with, uh, with the world and with others. And so, so, again, that is non-intellectual. And then, of course, the intellectual is not only intellectual, but it's also the creative aspect of us. So we have three ways of knowing that need to be integrated. And that's really, if I look ahead, I, I can see that a new science can only be married with spirituality, with who we are, and with knowing by becoming, as opposed to knowing only intellectually by solving equations and knowing, doing all that stuff. That stuff is great. Uh, rationality has to be the starting point, but not the only point through which we know. And so, so is a necessary but not sufficient condition of knowing, the true knowing, the true knowing in which which is like the direct knowing of the most powerful experiences that people have, which are the ones where you are the world observing yourself. I mean, come on. This is something that can only be understood by having the experience. It cannot be understood intellectually. It can only be understood by being. It's so beautiful to hear you say that. So this is, you know, the lucky part of having had these both values together. One is the experience, the direct experience. It is so vivid that it is more even real than just seeing through the eyes or hearing through the, through the ears, which all depend actually anyway on consciousness in order for them to, to be real. Otherwise, they, they, you know, they are mechanical. Yeah. But then to have that profound experience as you did and have that very sharp intellect to be able to analyze it scientifically, logically, based on reason, 
and based on observation, on phenomena, the phenomenology of it, the reality of it, and the actual dynamics of it, and come to the real conclusion about the ultimate reality of life, is like a great cognition of what they would call in the Vedic tradition of a rishi, a rishi, a seer, a seer who is not somebody who just analyzes intellectually or composes intellectually, but actually sees the reality directly, and then the beauty of being able to explain it. So it's really a delight to, to be with you and to see your wonderful contribution on that level of unfolding the true ultimate reality of life. What is beautiful also in the tradition um, of ancient knowledge that have developed some of these aspects to different understandable levels today is that there is actually a technology to experience this value. So that experience which you had because of your innate, uh, let me call it enlightenment uh, of uh, awakening, can actually be experienced systematically through what we call transcending. And that's why in our program of teaching or about consciousness, we have a technology of consciousness. So, because people might say, well, this is beautiful theoretically, it's great. It's nice to have a new vision of reality. It's nice to have theoretical knowledge, which is very real and explanatory. But what do we do about it? And what we do about it is also very important. And that is to realize that many of the solutions for our world problems, for our health, for our behavior, for peace on earth, for relationships and conflict reside in consciousness, in meaning, in interpreting. If you interpret the other as separate from you and completely different, then you are likely to deal with them in a different way than when we understand it from your perspective, that we are one actually, and that it is the one that is appearing as many in each of us. And the cells of our body, they all have the DNA and they all interact together and work together, even though they have on an apparent level, contradictory sometimes interest. One cell might want to store nutrients. One cell might want to burn nutrients because of different things. And so they could be fighting, but they don't find because they act in unity, knowing they are one. They are one part of the wholeness. And that's why with multiplicity on the surface level, we have a unity of a body, of a, a coherent value that allows us to work together. And ultimately, we are all one. This beautiful way to, you put it as whole and part, you know, whole part, you call it. It's not whole and part. It's whole part or part whole, whichever way you express it. Uh, it doesn't matter. That is the part has the whole in it and the whole is itself arriving as part. So this is very beautiful. You mentioned something which leads us to a related, but could be different a little bit point, which is free will. You also talk about free will yeah. and uh, you talk about intention and purpose. And how does this fit in the process? You mentioned some points just before I commented that actually lead us to think about free will because decision making, choosing to do this, choosing to do that. That means we have to have a free will. 
Yes. Well, in the model, the way I see it, a, a monad or a consciousness unit has three fundamental properties. It has identity, which is basically it knows itself as itself. It, it, you know, it knows that it is an actor and an experience, a, a, a someone that has an experience, and he knows that the experience is my experience. So the capacity to self-reflect, but it's almost like a, a double self-reflection. You know, you reflect yourself and you have an experience, but you, then you reflect that experience and say, ah, but that's my experience. So you can even observe your own experience. And so that capacity I call identity. And then there is consciousness, which is the capacity to know, the capacity to, to know through an experience is what is fundamental that allows you to know. And then, of course, I call it agency. And agency is the capacity to act. Now, at the fundamental level, acting is communicating. But, but now to communicate, you have to choose who do you listen to and what symbols, what part of your meaning do you want to communicate? So those are free will actions if you want to be a real independent and yes, dependent because we are all together, right? But in order to pursue your own self-knowing, you need to have free will. So consciousness, identity, and agency, the way I define them are facets of something that is who you are, you know, who we are, and uh, they cannot be separated. They, they, you, you cannot, you cannot talk about consciousness without bringing in identity and bringing in agency and free will. You know, it would not make any sense to be conscious and not have the ability to pursue your own path of knowing. So you need free will to do that. You cannot, you know, you, you cannot be programmed by someone else. God, you know, one, whatever you want to call the, that unity, wants to know itself as a free entity, you know, and so it has to give that freedom to all the consciousness units that, 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 that emanates from, from itself. So to me, this is another fundamental aspect. And what is important is that quantum physics actually, because of the property of entanglement and the property of the probabilistic nature of that theory, actually free will can be part of it. So it, where classical physics is deterministic and therefore free will cannot exist in a classical structure like a computer. Computer cannot have free will, cannot have consciousness. Where a quantum system can have free will and can have consciousness by properly defining quantum information, which is exactly what we have done in this uh, paper that I was mentioning earlier with, with Dariano, Professor Dariano. So consciousness now becomes a property that before was not recognized, and quantum information refers to an experience instead of referring to information. So the information is really the classical one, the, the information that can be shared, and quantum information is the you know, it should be called the experience because it is private. Quantum information cannot be copied. So it's exactly like your experience that is private. And you only and only you know that experience, can know that experience. So quantum physics refers to the interiority, the experiential aspect, the meaning aspect, and the mathematical aspect are a, how to say, it would be the description 
of something that, however, cannot be described in any other way but by experiencing it. And so, so it, you know, it, it's, it's actually beautiful because now you can begin to understand quantum physics because it, you can understand why quantum information cannot be copied. I mean, for us, information can be has to be shared. Otherwise, it doesn't. It, it, it shouldn't even use the word information. It cannot be shared. Not only that, but it should have some meaning because for you know we couldn't even call information something that has no meaning. But in physics you know, classical information has no meaning. It's, it's only a symbolic thing, period. And meaning is something that you may put to into it from the outside, but it's not into the symbolic aspect of reality. So physics, you know, the way is understood today is eviscerated of any meaning because only the forms and the interaction of forms are described by physics as if there was nothing inside. But since qu classical physics supervenes on quantum physics, the outer aspect supervenes on the inner aspect, which is the experiential aspect. So here we, here we go again. We now can begin to bring meaning into the universe, which physics has excised from the universe, because describing only the, the mathematical symbolic aspect of reality, uh, you know, the universe appears to be meaningless, especially if consciousness emerges 13.8 billions after <laughs> the first Big Bang. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful description. Just for the listeners sake and the viewers, the expression of the symbolic, like when we say the computer has no consciousness, can we just rather say that it is made out of more elementary aspects of consciousness? Because if we start with consciousness units, then the appearance of the symbol, just the symbol on itself, we can assume that the symbol has no consciousness from the perspective of certain levels of consciousness, has no self-consciousness, has no decision-making ability. But if everything is consciousness units, then can we say that this structure, the complex structure of a computer has at least some underlying elementary consciousness? Well, we actually physics and we nor in we, and we just just we, not to interrupt, but just to say that you know, we discussed briefly before we talked on, the, on this, that it's more a monistic view rather than a dualist view. Yeah. And the listeners might think that, oh, then there is something that is different, that is material, that is different, brings us back to the Cartesian Descartes division of, you know, consciousness elements and material elements. So I wanted to bridge that before we end our I understand, and, and it is very subtle because, like I was saying early on, that the ontology is in the fields, and so what we call particles, what we call matter, are actually states of the field, so they are part of the fields, they are appearances within the field. Now, the field is conscious, but the appearances of the fields are not conscious, they are just forms that come and go. I mean, and so the problem is that we give reality only to the forms. And so, and so a computer is simply a form on 
conscious entities that we don't recognize. So let's recognize the conscious entities and the computer is simply forms that you know, we have created for our own purposes that uh, are not conscious per se, because they are simply forms of something that is conscious. Their appearance of something that is conscious. You know, is an appearance, but we give reality to the appearance and we forget about the, the essence, which is the, you know, the stuff that is conscious because it has an experience and creates these symbols, this stuff, these forms, these states that are what we think are real. And so, so those states are not conscious in my model. The computer is not conscious because it's made of those states which, which come and go. And uh, you know, they are perishable, as perishable is uh, our body, which is also forms in space and time. But we are not perishable. In other words, our consciousness survives the death of the body. You know? And so we don't go anywhere where when the body dies in, in this model that I have. Uh, we simply, the forms that we have used to interact with other like forms in this uh, almost virtual reality that we call physical reality are really props. You know, It's like a virtual reality on a computer. Does that have consciousness? I mean, the, the character in the virtual reality, which is a bunch of bits you know, <laughs> interacting with each other, are they real? Do they have consciousness? Absolutely not. And, no, and they're they, not real, yes. They're not real, therefore they're not conscious. And yeah. it's because they are not real that they are not conscious. That's, that's the point. And that's why, why I'm saying a computer is not, is not conscious because it's not real. Yeah. It's, it, <laughs> you know, it's really forms, forms on something that is more fundamental that is really the ontology, the ontology of reality, which is what reality is. I mean, it's, it's we are, you know, the reality is, is not what we call reality, essentially. That's the problem. And uh, the forms appear after the existence of monads. The consciousness in physics appears as properties of forms, which is, you know, it, it cannot be because those forms not being conscious cannot create consciousness. So it, we have a backward, essentially. <laughs> Beautiful. So it is really wonderful and a delight to be with you and to bring the backward forward and the relationship from the inner to the outer, from the most fundamental level of pure being, pure consciousness, pure existence, which is the ultimate reality, appearing as many and knowing itself, which is a very important theme in your writings and, and uh, explanation and theory and which is very fundamental, uh, we know, know thyself has been the greatest wisdom for a long time uh, since the Greeks and much before in, in the ancient traditions. And so we really see that there is now an awakening to the ultimate reality of life that is coming from both the subjective inner experience through even technologies of consciousness, such as transcendental meditation and other techniques that are awakening people to their awareness and its practical application to make things better for society, not only on the intellectual level, but directly on the experiential level. And we also see the awakening and interest in this field. We see so many people interested in yoga and meditation nowadays. And in great minds, uh, certainly yours, that is unfolding the true reality of life 
And that really is fundamental, not only theoretical, in understanding uh, how we go forward in making life better and making life work for everyone on the true fundamental reality of existence, which is consciousness, although the symbolic aspect of it is very important in terms of dealing and communicating and intention and purpose, which we also describe as a vector, as a metaphor. Maybe in another discussion we go, we go into these, these profound values. But I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast, for your vision, uh, your understanding, and your clarity to see things as they are and not build them on prejudice. You know, you come from the land where Galileo has changed the concept of the Earth as the center of the universe, which was considered completely real based on the sensory perception. And you come from the field of physics, where we have so many physicists have discovered the non-reality of the localization in time and space and the hardness of time and space. And now we know they are relative and quantum mechanics. And with all your research and your findings and introspection, we have a, a real legend, precious thinker and finder in the world. And it's a delight to have been with you. Thank you for all you're doing. And we look forward to more discussions and unfolding true reality of life for life to be lived in the better way possible for everyone. Thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.